What you're hearing now is a digital audio revolution, in my opinion. The world has changed beneath our feet. There is nobody, nobody who loves radio more than myself. But clearly, we are in the middle of a digital revolution. I've been a talk show host. I've been talking about this kind of stuff all my adult life. But it never happens to me, save an experience with uh, a couple of unidentified flying objects. None of this other stuff, I've never met these creatures, these animals, these things that we talk about and wonder about on the air. Have you ever had something that just really gnaws at your soul? I'm not the wuss of the talk shows that you're probably used to listening to. Want to take a ride? Of course you do. It's been a while. I, when we've been looking forward to for a while, a big guest for this show, someone who's been at the forefront of the vaccine, I'll call it the vaccine awareness movement, um, and writer and producer for a really groundbreaking film that exposed the dangers of vaccines, particularly the MMR vaccine and its link to autism. Uh, really a fantastic piece of work, and we'd love to talk to him about that, as well as the director of the Informed Consent Action Network, which, um, well, we'll talk to Dalek about exactly what uh, their activities are, but it's about informing people about the potential dangers of vaccines, about the vaccine agenda, about how big pharma is involved with that, responsible for spreading a lot of awareness, uh, particularly about the vaccine issue uh, in the alternative media space and with facts breaking into uh, kind of the mainstream. And right now, uh, and more recently, a very controversial voice about uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, how dangerous it might really be, what the agenda behind it might be, um, what he thinks about uh, wearing masks. A lot of the stuff that this guest has said on his platform has gotten him censored, particularly on YouTube. These are th He talks about things that you literally are not allowed to talk about on most mainstream platforms right now, especially and in including YouTube, uh, but it's probably dangerous on places like Twitter as well for going against uh, the mainstream argument. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest. Very excited to have him on again. And he said he will be taking phone calls later, so make sure to stay tuned for that and think of any questions you have for him. Dell Bigtree, thanks for joining me, Dell. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. You know, um, my introduction to you was my wife and I took the time to watch uh, Vaxxed, which I understand you're a writer and producer for. And I think it, it you know, it certainly makes a, a really convincing argument, I think, for any rational viewer that there is a link between 
the MMR vaccine in particular and autism. Um, so I just want to thank you for, for making that film, putting yourself on the line for that film. And I, I was curious to ask how you decided to get involved with that project. It looks like before that, maybe you were working on kind of regular TV. You worked for Dr. Phil for yeah. a while. What ended up getting you working on that film? Well, um, yeah, I was a producer on the CBS talk show, The Doctors, for about six years. Uh, I had transitioned after working for about five years with Dr. Phil. Um, he created with his son the show, The Doctors, and sort of I, I switched over and got involved with Doctors, and it was a really great experience. I won an Emmy Award with the rest of the producers of that show. Um, and the way the doctors work, a lot of people don't really know sort of the, how the sausage is made, but there's about seven producers on the show like that in order to fill every day with an episode. So seven of us would go out and find all the guests and produce an episode for each week. We'd shoot that, and then you'd make the stockpile of about 180 episodes at play through the year. And so I was just one of those seven producers. Um, but I think... Um, if you talk to the lawyer for the doctor's television show, she would often come up to me and say, you know, you cost us more money than anyone else. And the reason being that I, um, I was really into controversial stories. I, I, I used that platform and daytime talk to answer some of the questions I was curious about. And luckily, you know, as, as you probably know, you, if you're going to be a success, you sort of have to have a sense of where people are at or they have to like the same things you like. I wasn't going to go out and try and please people. I wanted to please myself. I wanted answers to the things that I wanted answers to. And so that's how I produced. I think it made me one of the most successful producers on the show. Um, but I would take on big topics. You know, there was um, one of the biggest stories I did would be the moment the WHO ruled that glyphosate, which is the the chemical in Roundup made by Monsanto, which is really in the news now, wasn't as much back when I reported on it. But the WHO, you know, said it was probably carcinogenic to human beings. Um, it sounds like a light statement, but that happens to be the second highest rating that exists as far as cancer goes. Um, and so the WHO came out and said you know, after meeting with IARC, you know, all the top scientists around the world got together in the symposium and decided that it really did appear that glyphosate um, was probably carcinogenic to human beings. And so I decided to do a show on that on The Doctors. Now, it's a mainstream medical talk show um, that's sponsored by many, probably Bayer and Pfizer and Merck and all of these people. So it was always dangerous to do those things, but I managed to get the, you know, to sell the the executive producers on it, and we had a debate. I ended up reaching out to Monsanto and saying, um, you know, what do you have to say about this ruling from the WHO? Would you like to make a comment? And they said, no, we would like to send someone to defend our product. I said, fantastic. Uh, so they sent uh, Donna Farmer, who's the head of pharmacology for Monsanto, to the show and then I ended up bringing in the GMO activist Jeffrey Smith, who had written tons of uh, books and, and information on it, to have a debate on the show about this product. Um, those were the types of things I would do. It just ironically now, when we're seeing these lawsuits that are being won against Monsanto, billions of dollars being paid out for exactly this. We're talking, I think it's been five or six years since I did that show now. 
but they're actually using footage from the episode that I did in the courtrooms because they have Donna Farmers now. They've now presented emails and things from inside during the document dump that repeat that go against what she said publicly, which now really impinged her in her statement. So, you know, that's who I am and that I've always been attracted to those type of stories. And because of that, you know, you have um, certain I have inside contacts that started recognizing, you know, if Dell might cover this story, people inside the CDC, people in hospitals and different scientists I'd worked with. And one of them in particular, um, I did a very another very controversial story um, that I won't get into details of. But while I was working with this scientist, I found him and, I, and he said to me, you know, Dell, you may not want me to be the scientist representing this story on the doctors. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, because if you look me up online, um, you'll see that I'm considered a quack. I was like, well, you're a radiologist. You're, you know, you're in the middle. You know, you still have a career, right? Said, yeah, but I'm one of these doctors that actually believes that vaccines cause autism. Mm-hmm. I said, well, this story has nothing to do with autism. I'm not worried about that. But I said to him while we started working on this project, it took me about a month to do all the research to get it together for the show. But I said to him, look, you know, we're, we've got our opinion on the doctors of vaccines and autism. Uh, we've already had a you know, very controversial show with Jenny McCarthy and everybody, and that got very heated. I don't think we want to go near that again. But let me say this. I'm open to any story, uh, especially if something changes. So I said, if there's ever a sea change to this story or Certainly let me know and I'll see what I can do. And and so about a year later, I get this phone call and he said, you know, remember when you said if something big was going to happen in the vaccine autism discussion? I said, yeah. He said, well, there's going to be a whistleblower at the CDC that's going to come forward in two weeks and um, say that vaccines cause autism and that they've committed scientific fraud on the studies and specifically the MMR autism study between 2000 and 2004. So that just naturally for a reporter, I just thought it might not be true. You know, this guy did everything I worked with him on. My other story with him really added up. But I immediately went to my executive producers, as you should have said, I think I have a lead on what might be the biggest medical story in my lifetime. Uh, they're like, all right, Dallas, this is quite a pitch. What do you got for us? And I said, we have a whistleblower inside of the CDC, one of the top epidemiologists in the country, is coming forward and saying they've committed scientific fraud um, on the vaccine autism um, connection. And so they said, basically, they started laughing. And, you know, they just said, you got to be kidding me. We're not going to mess with the CDC on the show. We're not going to mess with our pharmaceutical sponsors. And, mm-hmm. and I wasn't surprised by that. I had a pretty good ride on the doctors, but I knew that this was going to be taking things to another level. Um, but I assumed that one of the tricks I would use if there's a story I really wanted to tell, but they were afraid of it, I would just wait for mainstream news to cover it. They would have their spin usually driven by pharma or something. But I'd say, hey, I think since we're the doctors, we should get in and cover this too. And then I would really start my investigation there. And that's what I was hoping would happen. But of course, the whistleblower, as I stated in Vax, came forward online, was saying things like, you know, every time I see a child with autism, I feel guilty. We hid statistically important information. I can't believe we did what we did. And I watched these statements coming out, and no one in news covered it. Nobody did. And that really was a turning point. I won't say that it was like I was like totally blown away. I knew who I worked for. I knew what was going on. 
But I didn't realize pharma had so much control over all of television, over every news network until that moment. And that's when I realized, wow, they'll cover anything up and have the power to do it. And so that's when I started really investigating it. And I probably, you know, to be honest, there's people that will, you know, say, oh, you were altruistic, you risked your career. And, you know, it definitely changed my career forever. But I might not have done anything if it hadn't been for SB 277, which was this law in California that right at the same time this was going on, and I knew about the story, no one was covering it. Um, I got called to the stage. You know, I work at Paramount Studios. I'm sitting in my office, and I had a show that had a hole in it. I had one segment, the seven segments in the show. One of the guests had, I think, dropped out or something. So we needed to fill it because it was about to air on television in two days. And so I get this call, come over to the stage, Dell. We've got a piece we're going to put into your show. So come over, take notes real quick backstage so you can cut it really fast and, and, and put it into your show. And so I went over to the stage and it was Dr. I mean, it was, um, yeah, Dr. Richard Pan, who mm. was the senator in California who was coming onto the doctors to sell this great new law of his that was going to essentially forcibly inject children uh, beyond their parents' wishes if they were going to be in public or private school. And as he was laying this thing out, um, I was just watching it thinking, that's the end of democracy. That's Nazi Germany. If we can't control what's injected into our children, then we are in serious trouble. And that segment, I remember thinking, this may be the day I have to quit this show because there's no way I'm going to put that, that guy's story in my show I went to the executive producers and just basically said, you know, that was like 10 minutes long and I only had about a minute and a half window. You should probably give that to somebody else. I'll find something else. And they said, yeah, it's probably a good idea. But it really started bothering me that our show was promoting the death of, of human rights, of, of medical choice. And that's what really lit this fire where I wanted to investigate more and through an, a, a miraculous, really miraculous set of circumstances I ended up meeting uh, Andy Wakefield, Dr. Andy Wakefield, a very controversial doctor from England, who was already working on that William Thompson story. He'd been on it for about a year. Mm. Um, and so it was just, this is incredible. Right when I was really thinking, I want involved, I want to be a part of this. I got to stop SB 277. Why is no one telling the whistleblower story? You know, it's one of those moments of life where, you know, I sort of got, I, I think, like a cosmic reaction to my desire and I got everything I wanted. I got involved with that film and we spent a year taking it to another level. I mean, when I met Andy Wakefield, you know, we I flew myself down to I said, whatever you got there, I want to see it. Um, and, you know, he was on the verge of being finished. But when I sat and watched about an hour and 45 minute film sort of my life suddenly made sense how I ended up in a medical talk show. I felt like that film needed exactly what I'd learned how to do, which was how to take this deep scientific story, a lot of legal implications it was very heady and deep. And I just said, Andy, we got to clean, we got to try and clear this out so that people can really understand what's happening here. You have all the data. I, I, he sat me down with the 10,000 documents that had been provided by the whistleblower. But it was a film that was just, in my mind, it was going to be too hard to understand uh, or to mm. follow. And so we really worked in changing sort of how it moved and did the things that I knew how to do after all the work I'd done. And 
Vax is one of those spectacular things you're involved with. I always say it's it's sort of like um, when you hear a sculptor says, you know, I didn't sculpt that. I just took away the stone that was in the way of the sculpture. It was always there. It's kind of how Vax felt. It's hard to talk about in terms of that I made it or that we made it. Um, I remember when we watched the final edited version, and I'd brought, I'd done several screenings with very smart and good producers and directors that I knew that gave some great um, thoughts. But when it was finished, I remember just thinking, who made that film? Um, It was so powerful and moving and poignant. And um, I just thought that film is far better than any of the people I know were sitting in the room making it. And it's, uh, it's hard to describe. If you haven't seen it, I don't think you can understand what's happening with Vax. And clearly the pushback was massive mm-hmm. um i think that scared the you know the medical industrial complex big time and mm-hmm. uh and it continues to travel the world and affect people's lives yeah well if people can get their hands on it i know it's been banned from a lot of places yeah um, well i want to ask you you don't have a specific like medical background but obviously you have a grasp for the information that you're getting and you have some what what ended up drawing you to that type of coverage i mean what ended up drawing you that pure, way pure accident you know like you know really um i went to film school i wanted to be making uh, narrative films i wanted to be a film director uh and you know and i had been since the time i was i was directing plays when i was a kid and you know always was very into the arts i was a, uh, an actor myself did a lot of stage performance and things like that so i was into the arts that way but I never really, journalism, you know, though I took journalism classes and things, that wasn't interesting to me. I wanted to be, you know, telling fictional stories. But, you know, I was, ended up waiting tables for a very long time. I was shooting and making music videos for friends and things like that. Mm-hmm. Through, you know, just one of those calls, someone said, hey, we need an extra camera guy on Dr. Phil. You know, why don't you come join us? And that sort of led me into this world that, I'd never looked at before, and and slowly I said, well, this is cool. This is storytelling, and I got myself into, you know, I sort of rose up from camera guy into, hey, Dell, go ask those people over there some questions during this thing, and, oh, you did a great job with that. I started being flown all over the country interviewing, you know, these crazy stories for Dr. Phil uh, and documenting them before they would come on and cutting those pieces, so all the backstories that you watch on Dr. Phil, which was an amazing, I mean, as a writer, it was an amazing experience because, you know, what they say is true. You know, truth is stranger than fiction. And I'll tell you, people with their odd problems, whatever they were versus, you know, family issues or whatever, I mean, the most shocking stories you'd ever hear and to be right in there and getting to ask these people any question you wanted, I really fell in love with that interview space. And I realized that my whole life I've been interviewing people. And it's really how I learned as a kid more than reading and things like that. I really like to sit down with the adults and hear what they had to say and ask questions and learn from people that had experiences. And so Dr. Phil, I really started being fulfilled through that. And then you start writing and you're, you know, you're working on, you have to understand the psychology because the show isn't just about presenting that material. You also have to give Dr. Phil a sense of where the story should go and what they would probably need. And you've already set up the rehab. You know, all of that's being done by the staff. You realize 
you know, you're putting that all together. And so I, I, that's, I started really looking at science and medicine and psychology. And then when uh, they decided to create the doctor's television show, I was, you know, the field producer they chose to say, Dell, we're going to team you up with this brand new executive producer we're bringing in to, you know, create this new show. And so he and I went around trying to think, what would this show be? And so I started, for, I was one of the first producers ever going into ORs with cameras and I started shooting surgeries and behind the scenes and how we're we going to turn this into television. And I just got deeper and deeper into it, more and more fascinated. And so eventually, you know, I rose up to producer and producing that show. And I remember at a certain moment, you know, I was always looking for some tasty story or some new science or an approach towards a surgery that was less invasive and was able to, you know, we're looking for miracle warriors. I mean, I really thought if I'm going to do this show, I want to find the best there is in the world. And I had this incredible, um, it was really cool because, you know, you, you would go through this feed on the doctors where people write in about an ailment, some crazy skin issue or, you know, whatever it is, they're, they're going blind. They didn't know what was happening and no one could help them. And so I would start searching through, you know, all these different databases and newspapers around the world. Is there any doctor that's saying that they can cure this or handle this, mm -hmm. you know? And then I would find somebody and I would send them this email saying, does this sound like what you are dealing with? Like, actually, that's exactly what I do. And so then I would have this opportunity to say, well, here, how about I offer you this? You heal this person. You do the surgery they need or give them the treatment they need for free. And I will present to the world what you're doing so everyone knows about it. And for many doctors, it wasn't just about the ego. It was about them being able to have other doctors know this is something I've found and discovered. Yeah. Uh, and so it was like this great Santa Claus opportunity to take people in need, really help them, and then also promote the, the technology or the work to the world. So, you know, all of that, just I developed this passion uh, for it. Um, and I remember one moment, you know, sitting and I was reading um, this medical study, this, you know, out of this medical journal and going through thinking, how am I going to make a story out of this new discovery in science? And I remember laughing to myself and thinking, Dell, if you went back and told your 18 year old self, you are going to be, you know, reading medical journals in your future and making, <laughs> you know, and explaining that to people, right. uh, I would have never believed it. But it was all part of just what life does for you. And then I would have to say getting teamed up with Andy Wakefield and spending a year in a basement with Dr. Andy Wakefield, who I don't care what anyone says about him. That is one of the greatest scientific minds, maybe arguably one of the greatest scientists that was alive on this planet who had his career destroyed because he was onto something pharma mm -hmm. didn't want. But his passion... And, uh, you know, I, I would always joke, you know, with Andy, I mean, he would talk about measles because, you know, that was the sort of the hard MMR, but his, his understanding of Crohn's disease and the intestinal system, which was what his was his specialty. But when he would start talking about measles and how it affects the cells and how it divides and, you know, and it was like listening to him talk about a supermodel. Mm. I mean, it was such a passion for the disease. Mm. And it really wore off on me that you could really be passionate about how something that maybe even attacks the body, but you live in concert with how it works in the world, how it spreads, how it's an entity unto itself. And so all of that, you know, 
I guess to answer your question, it grew on me, right? It was just circumstance and things that you start realizing, oh my God, I'm really into this. And, and I, I interviewed, I don't know if you've ever interviewed uh, Dr. Zach Bush. No, not really yet. Super brilliant. One of my favorite interviews, I've interviewed him twice, but he started describing how he got into the medicine he did. And he started out as a mechanic that got into engineering and, you know, and he told a similar story. It wasn't until he worked, you know, in um, a third world country with a family member is, you know, helping midwives, you know, giving birth that all of a sudden this experience of life and birth triggered this passion for medicine. And, and he said something that really stuck with me. I felt the same way. He says, I never knew I wanted to be in medicine, but school suddenly got easy once I got involved with that. I could remember everything. That was always difficult. And I found the same thing. I wouldn't have thought that I was necessarily, you know, I was, I was a perfectly intelligent kid, but I'm not a guy that becomes a doctor and goes into medicine. But the way the information sticks in my head, right. I think if I'd have had a similar route as Zach Bush, I probably would have really loved getting into medicine. It's something that... Hey, we just got some background on how he got to where he is right now. Really interesting conversation. And actually, people don't realize <clears throat> this vaccine thing is really controversial. Uh, people realize that, of course. <laughs> but uh, glyphosate originally i mean right now you you know everybody says oh yeah it causes cancer and stuff back five years ago adele said he was talking about it it was a conspiracy theory and there is a ton of money and a ton of uh um emotion behind protecting roundup glyphosate um because the farmers you know they don't want to hear it they the most of them use it and it kills their weeds and it's how they do it and they use the gmo crops and they're happy with it they don't want anybody screwing with the way they do business so there are all kinds of forces that don't want you talking about that um and so you know uh we have somebody with Dell big tree obviously who's willing to tackle these controversial subjects and obviously found that he has the mind for it too so i mean it's it's much appreciated um, we better, while we, we better get into it because I know everybody wants to hear about it. Um, and then maybe we'll get back into the vaccine um, and a little bit more about the censorship and what's happened with facts since then. But we better talk a little bit about COVID-19. And we talked before the show, you said you're interested in actually having a little bit of a debate about it. So we can do that too. I am, you know, I, I definitely have some questions. Um, the first thing I'd love to know, because I just had Andrew Wakefield, I'm, I'm sorry, not Andrew, Andrew Kaufman on yeah. the show last. And his theory is that viruses aren't real. So I've, maybe you can help settle that. You know, you mm -hmm. said you, you talked to Dr. Wakefield a lot and he's, he's gone around and he's informed people like David Icke and a lot of other people quote him. Yeah. Um, well, what, what do you say about that? I mean, it is, well, just like you, I mean, I, so I now have my own talk show, the high wire. I'm now doing what I always dreamed uh, you could do with television, which is if I don't have sponsors, I have to answer to, then I'm free to ask any question of anyone on the planet I want. And so I no longer have to pitch to some executive producers that allow me to do something. I get to interview anybody I want. And I, I actually interviewed uh, Andrew Kaufman. He was on my show um, last week, uh, The High Wire. You can go to thehighwire.com. But 
Uh, I'll be honest. I said up front that he was one of the most requested guests I've ever had. I wasn't really looking to talk to him, but so many people kept saying, "You better, li- you got to get Andrew Kaufman. You got to listen to this guy. You got to get his trip and his, his take." And so I did, uh, and it was a very, very fascinating interview. Um, it's some of the information he's saying is something I'm hearing a lot about. The idea that we may be seeing the end of germ theory and moving into, you know, as I said to him, this brand new theory of terrain theory versus germ theory. And he says, it's not brand new. And, you know, it's been around for almost as long as germ theory. They've just been competing views. But now, um, you know, I think when we look at COVID-19, we really start looking, what's been fascinating about it is, and I was saying to some friends of mine, we have never studied the common cold this seriously. In fact, I don't think we've ever studied the flu like this. We have never tested everyone. We can get our hands on hundreds of thousands of tests. This has never been done, mm-hmm. right? So we don't know that we're not looking at the common cold just more under a microscope. We could get into the arguments of how deadly this really is. But I think in many ways, we just decided to really get focused on something that we've been letting go by normally, just accepting as a natural part of life. Uh, every year upon year upon year, and suddenly we got really interested in it. Uh, I think there's a lot of agenda behind it, a lot of money to be made, but there's a lot that can be gained by the powers that be, um, which we can get into all those conversations. But talking to Dr. Kaufman, I, I mean, I got to finally ask him, look, I keep, I meet, as I travel, I mean, I'm, I'm at these conspiracy theory speaking events and whatever. I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist. I don't base my ideas on conjecture, everything I've ever stated uh, and investigate, I have to find multiple medical sources, peer-reviewed journals. That's what gets me where I am. Um, but I get if you're against mainstream, you know, the mainstream media system, then you must be a conspiracy theorist. I just want to point out that Woodward and Bernstein had a conspiracy theory that the president of the United States had tapped some phones and was cheating on an election. That's called reporting. You're a conspiracy theorists until you prove that you're right. And many of the things I've worked on since Vax are proving to be true. Um, mm-hmm. We can get into that. But, you know, so I meet these incredible people and I've heard a lot of scientists try to describe to me what they mean by terrain theory. And I got into it with Dr. Kaufman, too. And I thought it's, it's very intriguing. I won't say that um, I will, it has really sparked something in my mind. For people that are just listening or thinking for the first time, the idea is that perhaps viruses aren't coming from outside of us, that we inhale them and they infect our bodies, but actually our body produces what we believe to be viruses. Or, they, you know, they use this term exosomes, that, you know, we have injury. We're having constant injury. You know, just like if you get punched in the arm and you get a bruise and the you know, the red blood cells and all, you know, how we heal, there has to be, you got to clear the damaged tissue out. Like there's a whole process your body goes through. Terrain theory essentially says that that's true for illness too, that if you are, you know, really uh, your immune system's down, you have an, an injured immune system, perhaps your liver is not working correctly, you, the body will create um, a virus. It start, like they will say it starts with the bacteria. The first attempt for your body to clear those toxins out is through a bacteria. 
the bacteria doesn't do the job, then the next bigger thing is a virus or, or an exosome that we call a virus. Mm-hmm. And that virus is created by our body to, you know, either heat us up and give us a fever so we can burn it out. But it takes our body through a process that's actually a healing process. And that, you know, some people have said that measles or any of these diseases are already in us. It just takes a trigger. It's almost like, you know, a gene being flipped on that we go through this experience. That's, uh, I'm sure I'm bastardizing that on some level, but I'm telling you, and then this is part of what I do, right? I, like I said to you, I'm interested in science, but I'm a reporter. And what I try to do is if I can't understand it, I'm going to keep asking questions until I do. Um, and then if I really get intrigued and start seeing it prove out, then I'll work on presenting it. But so this idea that really cells or, you know, these, these parts of our body can turn into whatever they need to turn into uh, a virus or a bacteria or something in order to expel toxins out of our, our body. It's fascinating. I, and when he was saying it, I thought, you know, it's sort of like a, uh, it, it's almost like a creation theory that creation's happening inside of us all the time, you know, mm-hmm. that our bodies, like we hear that creation story, are creating entities and, and living, you know, processes and, and you know, viruses to, to get to an end goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really fascinating. I will say that I still put it in my list of, I need to learn more. I'm going to need to see um, more discussions about it. Uh, and that's what that's, I think that's where I'm different than, you know, I don't just jump on board with somebody on my show and say, hey, there it is, folks. It's not really a virus. I am saying I think it's a very, very intriguing perspective. And he makes really good points. And the reason I had him on, and you probably did too, is that, you know, his point is that they never did the proper um, uh, filtering and, you know, clearing and focusing they've never really um been able to extract the actual virus and even more particularly the particle that the virus is supposed to have come from so they've never truly established origin i'll have to tell you after interviewing him i've had a bunch of emails cdc websites being thrown at me that i've been throwing coffins way what do you say about this this looks like they're saying they've done that so it's all a part of the debate for me right now. But I, it has opened up a new part of this discussion. And I am questioning what is COVID-19. You know, sort of like that question we ask ourselves as kids. If, if I'm seeing red, are you seeing the same color red? Are we all looking for the same thing with COVID-19? Has it been isolated? Are these tests actually testing something very specifically that is only COVID-19? Or are these tests picking up other coronaviruses, perhaps the corona, like maybe do I have antibodies from the coronavirus, the cold, essentially, I had last fall or two years ago. And and I've been asking that question for many months now, and, and I can report that more and more science is saying that is exactly what's happening, that uh, there appears to be a real immunity in our population to COVID-19 simply because of the cold we may have had over the last two or three years uh, because it's a coronavirus. I mean, it goes without saying. It's sort of what we know to be true about the body, which is if I've caught a virus before, I'm supposed to have an immunity that protects me in the future. Um, So all of those things may be happening. But, you know, there's stories that do go along with Kaufman. I don't know if you saw the story of a fishing boat that just broke yesterday but i think it was like i want to say it's like 35 guys get onto this 
boat to go out to sea. Before they could get onto the boat, they all got, you know, tested for COVID-19. They tested negative. They quarantined them all for, I think, 14 to 21 days, tested them again, made sure they were still negative, put them on the boat so that there's no way any of them can come in contact with it. And while at sea, COVID-19 breaks out in the boat, mm-hmm. which is just, what is that? You know, like I, I, thought I saw one person reporting, is this a haunting? What is COVID-19? What is it we're testing for? And I think that if Kaufman is right, if we haven't actually um, really refined and found the particle that this comes from, is it possible we've just grabbed a, a, a snippet of RNA from some natural process in our body? And, and maybe some of us were going through that process and others aren't, but we're testing positive for what is really our own human, you know, um, forms of our tissue. Uh a super interesting question, and I would say right now, uh, anybody that is looking at anything to do with COVID-19 that has confidence in anyone they're listening to, then you are an idiot. Because I don't think you can trust anybody at this point. And as far as being a thinking, you are a critical thinking person. I think you're saying that story doesn't add up with that story. This study isn't adding up with that study. What you told me last week, Dr. Fauci, you're now saying the exact opposite this week. And so we find ourselves in a position right now where I'm wondering, are they spinning so many different stories and making it so chaotic that I can't, you know, that I'm just giving up. I just want to give up on trying to figure out what's going on here. But don't point to me and tell me that Dr. Fauci, like when I see articles about Dr. Fauci is a hero and Donald Trump is not these stupid arguments. I was like, I really ask, please enlighten me on how Dr. Fauci is a hero. Can you show me one statement this man has made over the last four or five months of this experience that held to be true two weeks later? I mean, he has absolutely changed his statement almost every time he steps in front of a camera. What talent is that? I mean, we're supposed to have people with vision. Um, and I think that the, he's gotten himself involved in things that I think may really put the blood of, of innocent people on his hands sometime in the future. But that's where I'm at. Where I'm at is I will listen to any perspective right now. I am trying to put a puzzle together that is either missing some very important pieces or we're not looking at this the right way. And I, I read a great article. You know, I know we can go all over this, but a forget who it was written by, but a scientist out of, I believe it was Switzerland, who said the problem was we came out with the wrong hypothesis from the beginning. The moment we said this was novel, that it was a novel coronavirus, we set ourselves off on the wrong path. This is just another coronavirus. It's a slight mutation from the one we had last year. It is in the family of SARS and MERS, but it's also in the family of your common cold. If we'd have just said it's a coronavirus, we wouldn't have dealt with it the same way. We wouldn't have been as terrified of it. And we wouldn't have made the decisions we made in hospitals and treatments, in locking down, all of these things, which have all affected our death rate. We've driven this death rate up through a panic caused by what appears to me really now to be one thing I will say is they were wrong about this virus in many different ways. And what will prove to probably be the most important mistake was calling it novel. There wasn't anything brand new. And for someone that doesn't know what that means, if it's not a novel coronavirus, see, a novel virus would be one our bodies have never seen before. When you hear about Native Americans dying from 
you know, coming in contact with the common cold when we first brought it over from England or pygmy tribes dying from things that we're used to, a flu. It's because their species, you know, their, their people or the tribe never saw it before. That's a novel experience, right? It's brand new to them. And so that is alarming. This is an alarming disease. If no one on this planet had any immunity to it whatsoever, that means herd immunity, 75, 85% of us, maybe even 90 are going to have to catch this thing, whether it's injected into us by a man-made approach to it, or we breathe it in one way or another, you're going to have to get it. And so that brings a lot of repercussions that we don't think about. We're not that we don't have any flus like that. We always have some immunity to flu. Some people will get the new H1N1, some won't. And so that's what started this panic. But now as we look at more and more science, uh, including Dr. Friston, who's one of the leading, they, they say he's the most, you know, um, renowned neurologist or, um, you know, brain doctor in the world. He's done some incredible mapping of this that shows there's 80% of people on this planet. And he was the first one I saw say this just about a month ago. He said through, you know, he took the same way he maps the brain using, he talked about like all of his models and his computers were able to see all of the firing and the synapses that you can see to figure out what's happening in the dark matter of the brain that you can't. That's why he's considered to be arguably the most important, you know, uh, neurologist in our lifetime because he can. He's been able to build the brain and help us understand it by putting in and computing all these things. Well, he said, I took the same information uh, or look at information with my computer. I said, well, look, I can look at the people as, you know, the, uh, the, the brain cells. I can look at the information, the synapses firing information as the virus itself. I can load in. It has all, my computer can handle all the same points. And so he looked at the globe like this brain and the virus, how it moves between the people, super fascinating, and found this dark matter cloud around the world where 80% of the population or the cells were not being affected by this virus. And so he said, I believe 80% of people are either immune to it or are in a place, the way they're situated on this planet, they cannot catch this illness that that's a huge and now it's being mirrored by more and more scientists it's really breaking this week it does appear that you know between you know right around 60 to 80 percent of us may already be immune to this thing because this was not a novel virus our cold gave us enough immunity to protect us from covid19 which changes everything that changes everything that would be really great news i think and actually i was reading an article just today um from bbc future it's called the people with hidden immunity against covid19 yeah one of the quotes from it is this when researchers tested blood samples taken years before the pandemic started they found t-cells which were specifically tailored to detect proteins on the surface of COVID-19. So uh, I'm reading about this for the first time today. I mean, I'm sure we disagree about some things about the virus, but it, it would be, it is great news to me from what I think it appears to be, you know, killing a lot of people. Um, it would be great if we didn't have to get to that 75, 85% for her yeah. immunity. You say it's not a novel virus. It's an interesting way to look at it. Um, what do you think? I mean, I think that there seems to be a lot of evidence 
evidence that they were doing gain of function research at this Wuhan lab. And Mm -hmm. there is a lot of research that suggests this thing was cut with HIV. And it does have a lot, it does seem to attack the immune system the way, uh, a little bit like the way HIV does. Um, Where are you on on the the bioengineered part of this? I'm in the same place, um, which is, I have interviewed both sides of this. Uh, The jury is still out for me. I mean, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence, but that is not what science is. Sure, you have a lab right there in Wuhan. Why does it break out from Wuhan? We have funding going in. We've moved to coronavirus we're messing with here in America out to this lab. I mean, all of that, true. Yes, 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 yes. Really good chance it could have escaped from that lab or was released from that lab. All of that is possible. But I don't think we have seen, I have not seen that is true. Um, And so I'm still going to, I keep it open. And by the way, I've been fact-checked online by a fact-checker. In fact, one, a brand new one was reaching out to me to give me some sort of rating for my show. And one of the things they said is, you have actively promoted the idea that this is a man-made illness. And I, and I wrote, you know, I, amongst many questions, said that's absolutely not true. You obviously don't watch my show because, yes, I have had a scientist on that showed me the spike protein and how it, you know, use a pea shuttle, which is a, a manipulative scientific tool to insert, you know. I, I had that person on. Uh, but that scientist came on, James Lyons-Weiler, came on two weeks later and said, Actually, after doing your show, a bunch of scientists reach out to me. I have changed my you know, perspective. They've showed me that this is a protein that is in the pangolin, and it does appear to be natural. Uh, I didn't buy it uh, both times. I said, look, folks, these are theories, and I think it's really fascinating. We should be following all of this. Uh, to me, here's what matters, though. If this is a man-made virus, um, then... So be it. It is. If it's, a, you know, the idea that maybe it's a bioweapon, um, then it's a really weak bioweapon. I don't think the death rate of this illness is worth uh, is worthy of the attention we've given it or certainly approach where we are destroying the world we know to hide from it. I think that makes absolutely no sense. And I think you could argue very easily that it's our hospitals and our approach to this virus that has been killing people, not the virus itself. Yeah, I, and I think, well, and the death rate is going down quite a bit. They say that now a hospitalized person is 50% less likely to die, and they've come up with new treatments like steroids and, and actually hydroxychloroquine for doctors yep. who are using it or saying that it works pretty well. I, this remdesivir, I don't think they're, I think that's just a big pharma scam that Fauci's involved in too. It doesn't seem to do that much. Agreed um, with you. Yep. But yeah, I agree with you. The, and and, I, and they just shut down, I mean, they just shut down California. They just shut down my county. We've had four deaths in the last 14 days. We have 90 some percent of ventilators available. I mean, I, I, I get it. Well, what do you think's happening? And, and I've looked at a lot of these numbers. They are showing pretty massive excess deaths from this virus in a lot of different places, Ecuador, the UK, Spain, Italy, here as well. You know, where in New York City, for example, every week you are having three times the, nor- the usual number of, of deaths. Um, so I'm looking at the numbers out there and assuming that they're not all made up, which a lot of people will just tell me 
The mainstream media lies. These numbers aren't real. Um, but I am seeing that. And now we have stories. And I guess we have to understand, are the hospitals really full in Houston? Are they having problems in Miami? And uh, I don't like the government telling people what to do. I'm really a libertarian at heart. Um, But I do think that there is evidence that shutting down did slow down the spread of the virus. And if it is a contagious virus, it makes sense. The less we're around each other, the less it's going to spread. And um, I don't know what the alternative like New York had, for example, in the situation they were in. Um, I, like I said, I don't want the government to do that. Um, but they were in a pretty desperate situation. They shut down a couple weeks later, the numbers started to come down and then everybody else stayed shut down. The numbers stayed down. Then we opened back up. People start going to bars. I went to sixth street in Austin just to see what it was going to be like. The first day they opened up, no social distancing, no masks. Everybody's all over each other in the bars. I said, you know, if this is a contagious virus, I don't think this is going to work out. And down the road here, all of a sudden, the numbers explode again. So um, I, 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 I agree with you about government overreach and stuff. But I, but I do, I think you say something about how, how deadly you think the virus is. What, yeah. what, how deadly do you think it is? Well, uh, I, I think that... First of all, when I started really looking at the numbers coming out of Wuhan, uh, maybe four and a half months ago, wherever we looked back, before we were looking at New York, um, I predicted right there that they were wrong. I said that, you know, when I looked at the death numbers there, and even more specifically the next week, we started seeing Italy's numbers come in. It looked bad. You know, it was a bad flu, you know, but it was not the 3%, 5% death rate that had been predicted. And I said, the Imperial model is going to prove to be dead wrong. And it could not have been more wrong if it tried. And we started a course of action based on the potential of millions of people dying. We are now in a world where hundreds of thousands of people die. It's a very different scenario. And yet there's been no course correction whatsoever. Uh, That's just the beginning of it. Um, You know, I can... I don't know if you're going to go to break because... Yeah, hold it right there. You can go to break and let me... Okay, Okay, that'll be great. All right, everybody, we're here with Dal Bigtree. He's going to give us the information on the death rate of the coronavirus next. We're going to be taking your calls in the last half of the show, so get ready for that. Our love pill is equal to 20 cloves of garlic. 20 cloves. Shields up. You've heard of our life change cleansing tea at GetTheTea.com. Now try heart love. And by the way, take your blood pressure and watch weekly what happens. So here's how to purchase. Log on to GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. And build your shields. That's GetTheTea.com. Mention Ray in the coupon code and hit apply and receive free shipping. Listening to Midnight in the Desert with host Nathan Stoltman, exclusively on the Dark Matter Digital Network. Now, here's your host, Nathan Stoltman. All right, and we're back. 
here with Val Baitree. We're talking about, well, we were talking about vaccines. We're talking now about COVID-19. Before the break, we were getting into it with Dell about uh, how deadly this virus really is. I mean, how dangerous it is. Dell says that it's pretty overblown right now. So what So what were you going to tell me, Dell? What do you think? All right. Well, you went through sort of your perspective of it and, and, and you know, it tends to be sort of the mainstream narrative, not to put you in that box, but, yeah. you know, I, I know where it's coming from. Um, I have a different theory on it based on all the investigations I've done. And so here's my theory uh, of what took place. But let's start with what the death rate number is. If we go to the CDC's numbers right now. What they are reporting is based on the amount of, you know, so there's two numbers. They say if we look at just the symptomatic um, people with COVID-19, those who had symptoms, the death rate of that group is 0.4%. If we add in the, 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 the roughly 25 to 35% of asymptomatic, and that's a very conservative number, some have estimated that the asymptomatic may be 75 to 85% uh, of, of you know, what we're seeing or, or higher than what we're seeing. But let's take the low number they're using. That drops your death rate to 0.26%. Um, and not 20%. I've heard people say 20% are going to die. 0.26%. One quarter of 1% that get this illness apparently die. So one out of 400 people in, in, you know, in the entire, if you look at the population that are infected, uh, one out of 400 sounds like a pretty high number, but then you take, you look at it and over the age of 65 contains 80% of those people. Mm -hmm. So when I look at mass and all the rest of us running around, I see people terrified. You know, I started looking at the numbers today. I don't have them exactly, but roughly if you are between the age of 45 and 65, your, your risk of death is one out of every 2,500 people that get the illness. If you're between the age of 25 and 45, your risk of death is now one out of about 14,000 people have to get it. So if you're in the 25 to 45 range and you are afraid of this disease and you don't have any like serious life-threatening issues, then you were just been manipulated by the media. You are more likely to be hit by a car, struck by light, I mean, you name it. If you're zero to 24 years old, your risk is one out of 250,000 people that get it, okay? So none of those people, if you're under the age of 65, technically you're not at risk in my book, okay? But well, that point, the flu would be worse, basically. Would be worse right. and okay. is worse. In that age, yeah. in that age group, right. especially kids, we've never seen a flu that doesn't affect kids. COVID-19 does not affect kids. Right. Okay, so but we, let's talk about this 0.26% number. And, and let's talk about that group that really they're more like 3 or 4% when, you know, they are over the age of 65 with comorbidities. That's, that's the issue, right? That's who... We're not locking down because you and I are going to die. We're supposed to be locking down to save grandma. All right. And, and we're, we're playing into people's nobility and all of those things. Um, I would argue right up front that at 0.26, really the flu we say is, is on average is 0.13%. So people get a sense of it. So I've heard this is a little lower than that. I've heard it maybe even 0.05 or something. What so. flu? Yeah, I've 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 heard it uh, anywhere between point one and a little bit less than point one. It's what I've heard, but I've, I've, I know so we put up with point. Uh, I think Germany had a flu outbreak in 2017 that was arguably um, 
about 0. 0.3 to 0.5%, so much mm -hmm. higher. Right. Uh, right, in, right in line with where we're at here. Uh, the mm -hmm. United States had a pretty bad year in 2017. We I think we had about 80,000 people die, okay? And we're currently at about 140. So we're looking at about double. It's about mm -hmm. double. Mm -hmm. So 0.13%. And so all I'd have to do to you, you know, for your argument is say, is this really more than 0.13%? We still don't know. These are still, you know, better and better guesstimations as we have more and more testing and understanding what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue this right here, that before New York ever had its problem, or right at its beginning, a scientist in France named Dr. Didier Rayout came out and said, I have successfully treated with a 99% success rate every patient we've, we've had in our studies with hydroxychloroquine, right. and they have all lived. Okay, mm -hmm. They've all lived. Donald Trump said, I like the idea of this hydroxychloroquine. And then we had the craziest thing that ever happened in, in science. It became political. Right. Suddenly, all Democrats had to be against the cure because the idiot Donald Trump got behind it. He has to be wrong. Fauci did not come out. He jumps on the other side of it. And now we are taking a virus and a treatment, and we are using human beings in the middle of it um, as a tetherball. And it's the, and I think history will frown on this, this event, especially around hydroxychloroquine, because 200 studies around the world have shown that this is an incredibly effective treatment, especially when given with zinc. Zinc, and for people that don't understand how it works, zinc is what kills COVID-19 very easily. In Didier Rayu's case, he was using azithromycin, but the hydroxychloroquine simply opens up the cell so either the azithromycin or the zinc can get into the cell to kill uh, the coronavirus. That's how it works. I interviewed um, Vladimir Zelenko, who's, the, who's had more cases. He's just come out with his study out of New York, nearly 1,000 patients, incredible results. Uh, he's in about the 99% success range. Uh, there was a study done by um, Ford uh, Medical Group in, in Detroit that just came out. One of our biggest research hospitals, uh, they used six of their hospitals in a study and they just came out and finally admitted just about two, three weeks ago, their study showed a 50% reduction in death, half the amount of deaths in their, in their patients that got a hydroxychloroquine regimen up front versus those that were not given hydroxychloroquine. So right there, if Ford is right, you just cut your 120,000 down to 60,000 right now, and we are under the flu level right there. So if you imagine those flu numbers come in and we have flu shots and all the things we do, we just didn't know how to treat this, or we avoided the treatment we could have had. I believe, had you used hydroxychloroquine from the beginning, and I think history will tell this very clearly as we move forward, that we killed at least twice as many people as we needed to because we got in a political fight over a treatment. Let's put that aside now. What I want to say is this, and it, it has to do, here is my theory, and it's based a bit on what I told you, that scientist that said this was never a novel virus. Here's what I actually think happened. And let's use New York as the example, because you can watch the timing. And what, what really set me on this is I said, when did people start dying, right? And you know, I don't remember um, March. It was right around nearing the end of March, March 26, 20, I don't remember the exact dates, was when we started the lockdown in New York, right? Well, that was when, you know, and so if you look at it, if you look at the death rate that's going on, COVID-19, we now have to, we now know that it was in California as early as, as January, potentially December, 
Mm-hmm. Um, the, all right. So the timeline's different than any of us realized. It was here for for months, right? And and it was incredibly infectious. From everything we can tell now, so many more people had it than we realized. Yet you see, and you talk about like the the overall death, right? The excess death. No excess death from December, you know, you know, January, February, March, and then in the end of March, we're still flatlined. Suddenly comes our approach, our 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 Fauci-driven, WHO-approved approach to COVID nineteen. And you watch on March, right at the end of March, watch what happens. Boom, people immediately start dying. Death rate goes through the roof for the next two to three weeks and then flatlines and plateaus at a really high death rate for several weeks, if not months. I mean, New York's finally coming out of it. And so I find that extremely curious. You have no rise in death when we're just standing there going, I don't know what it is. What if it was just a common cold? And what I'm gonna argue to you right now is I believe we could have killed this many people over the common cold because while it was only a common cold and we were only treating it like a common cold, nobody was dying. The moment we started treating it, everything changed and here's what happened. We said that this cold was different than any cold. This one's deadly. This is a deadly pathogen that kills people and they drop in the streets of Wuhan. We've seen it and so we've got to deal with it in a very precise way. And what did that make us do? It made us change how we have handled the coronavirus since the dawn of man. What did we do differently? Here's what we did differently. Immediately, that we're put on. Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. You were tuned in to Midnight in the Desert. Pretty great show. Pretty great information. We figured out Del Bigtree does wear a mask, actually. <laughs> even though he says he shouldn't. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow night with a great guest. This is Midnight in the Desert. We'll see you tomorrow. That's what it is. Midnight in the Desert Shooting stars